You can just keep keep doing what you're doing. If you're at the altar, you can stay here. It's up to you. We're not gonna rush out of this moment too quickly. Just as Chris was giving that description of, of Jesus here out of Revelation, which I'm gonna get to in a minute, I just I felt the Holy Spirit just prompting my heart to linger in this moment to minister to some people here. But I want to read first out of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 53. Love these verses about Jesus. Because it's not what you would think would be written about him now that we know who he was and what he did. Isaiah 53 verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant, speaking of Jesus, grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. This is talking about him growing up as a child as he clothed himself with humanity. It's, listen to what it says. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Yeah. Huh. How could that be? Nothing beautiful or majestic about it. It means it. If you were just, if you saw him in a crowd, you'd just pass him by because he was just typical. Verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquitted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yeah. Same person, same person. Revelation chapter one. This is John having his revelation as it's so entitled. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were as polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like the mighty ocean waves. Come on. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Oh, same person. How can it be? I have such a sense that God wants someone here to hear tonight what the world sees is not who you are what the world sees is not who you are what you have said about yourself is not who you are how others have described you is not who you are the self-talk that you have convinced yourself to be true is not who you are. That for some of you here tonight, you came in 
feeling like the book of Isaiah, overlooked, despised, rejected, average, normal, not seen. But God says who you are on the inside is your revelation. Beautiful and brilliant and mighty and lovely and awe-inspiring and alluring that God made you to shine. What the world sees is not who you are. Not who you are. So I pray tonight, God, that people's self-image would just turn and walk away from the lie from the lie of unworthy. In the same way that Isaiah says that we rejected Christ when it appeared to us that he was unseemly, I pray God we would reject what the world says about us that is not true. And that God, that you would give people here tonight, that you would begin to give them a vision of how you see them. That even now in your own supernatural way, that even now in a way that only your Holy Spirit can help us see it, can help us feel it, can help us believe that it is true, that you would help us to see what we look like in heaven. Help us to see with your eyes. Help us to see with a heavenly lens. Help us to see what heaven sees when it looks down upon us. We pray, God, that you would set people free tonight from the lie of mediocrity and that they would accept the gift of the revelation of the brilliance of who they are. Where any, whether anybody else sees it or not, whether anybody else believes it or not, where any, where, whether anybody else affirms it or not, it does not matter. Because in the end, it is what you speak over us. That is all that is true. And it is to that we say, yes and amen. Come on, in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you. All right, you can go home. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I'm going to make you wait for those cookies that I can't eat. Yeah, that's right, I'm bitter. I'm bitter about it. We joked in our circle time that maybe there would be a bucket of spinach or kale or something down there for us, those that are fast. I don't know if you saw my post or not from um, Friday. I was grabbing some lunch out, and I thought I was ordering a salad bowl, and when the server came around the corner, we started our our fast a little bit early. We're doing Whole30, and then I'm entering other things at each part of the way until I end up with just a juice fast that following week, but the server came around the corner with a, uh, with a wrap. A tortilla has never been so beautiful to me in all my life. <laughs> when you're not eating bread or most carbs or anything, I was like, this is exactly what it felt like Adam and Eve in the garden in the beginning of time. 
but I did not eat it. Come on, I held fast. And those greens never tasted so good. Jesus. April, I might bounce around a little bit on these slides, so just a, a warning. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Oh, I love this story. We might not get to all of this tonight. We'll see. We're going to move around a little bit in it. Entitled this message called The Widow's Might. This is a standalone week. Uh, Steve Ruggiero is going to be sharing next week. Come on, it's going to be good. And then uh, we're going to launch. Come on, you can clap. <clears throat> and then uh, for our anniversary service at the end of the month, I'll be introducing us to a new series that I'm excited about. It's going to be good. Luke. I'm going to start reading in 2045. Remember, the, the Bible, when it was really originally written, was not written in chapter and verse. And so it's okay that it's in chapter and verse because it helps us study it, helps us identify it, helps us learn it, helps us talk about it. But, but in its original form, it just kind of it flowed like a letter, like a letter. And, and so sometimes the chapter and verses, they, they drop in in places that make us seem like something has stopped and something new has started. And sometimes that's the case, but it's not always the case, and it's not the case here. So Luke 20, beginning in verse 45, it says, Then with the crowds listening, he turned to his disciples and said, Beware of these teachers of religious law. For they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. How they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at the banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. What you don't want to ever hear Jesus say about you. It's like when your parents called you by your first, middle, and last name all in one breath. Trouble is coming. Now see, in my Bible and yours, we start a new chapter, but it is not starting a new conversation. It says, while Jesus was in the temple... He, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. We're starting that next week. The elders are going to follow you around and see what you give when we pass the baskets in the Bible. Just kidding. Kind of. Then a poor widow came by. See, he's, this, this idea of widows, he's, he's trying to help us see he's on to something here. A poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. Listen to what Jesus says. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. This poor widow has given more than all the rest of them. For they have given a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework. See, I think the conversations, it's still going. Of the temple and the memorial decorations on the wall you're, you're tracking with me Jesus right this is this is this is like this is like ministering to people today you you have this sense that you're bringing such profound revelation to them and here are the disciples going aren't the bricks in that wall so pretty <laughs> right 
I mean, Jesus is talking about people being severely punished, and he's, he's given this great, this great message on, on, on widows and under-resourced people and poor people being championed and valued, and he's waiting for it. And do you see that mortar work right there? I mean, that's incredible, right? The greatest example of Jesus' self-restraint is that he did not murder any of these men the three years that he was with them. Maybe he did and we just didn't know it because he raised them back to life so quick, right? When we get to heaven, Peter's like, oh, no, no, I died 45 times. It's like Jesus like, up, up, and then he's like, whoo, that felt bad, right? Oh. <laughs> they begin talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the wall. Look at these decorations are lovely, lovely. Jesus said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of the other. I think Jesus here is trying to help us to understand a lot of things. But one of the things he is most certainly trying to help us to understand is that if you are going to choose a spiritual family... If you're going to choose a church to call home, there should be some questions that you are asking before you settle there. You might say, well, Fred, I'm not sure that's exactly here in the text. And what I would say to you is that we understand the Bible in light of itself. And because Jesus said, which we talked about coming into this year, one of the great proclamations of Christ is that he was going to build his church. And that becomes a lens through which we understand so many of Jesus' teaching. He revealed what he wanted us to be about after he left. And so now when we come back to his teachings, what we begin to realize is that Jesus left us some clues along the way for how we were supposed to do it. And here, Jesus is giving us some insight, I believe, that once we began to build a church, Jesus was saying, make sure the church that you build is very different from the religious establishment that presently exists. And he gives us some things very specific here. I had five of them I was going to get to tonight. I'm just going to start in on them. We'll see how far we get. I'm going to start with valuing myself first, April. Valuing myself. Luke 21, 1 through 4. When Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then a poor widow came by and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, this poor widow has given more than all the rest of you, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything that she has. Now we understand, and if you've been around church for any amount of time, we've heard many sermons on this text, and I believe them to be true, that Jesus is trying to bring some correction to how generosity is measured. It is not measured by volume of the gift. It's not measured by how big it is in heaven's eyes. It's measured proportionally as what is that as a percentage of what you're giving. So Jesus is trying to help us to understand the economy of heaven. The economy of heaven is, we could look at this gift and say this gift is massive, but heaven looks at it and says no, because that's not even a sacrifice for that person. The economy of heaven then looks at this gift that seems small and inconsequential, and heaven says, no, 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 no. That, that is the gift of the ages because of the sacrifice it represents. Yes, that would be a great sermon to preach, but I'm not going to preach that sermon. 
I believe that there's another side of this that often gets overlooked and that is not just the value of the gift, but Jesus here is talking about the value of people. Because under-resourced people are often overlooked and are undervalued. Under-resourced people are often looked upon as if they do not have as much to contribute because they are not as wealthy, they are not as educated, but what I would say to you again, what the world sees is not who you are. I believe that Jesus here wasn't just trying to bring some correction to how generosity is measured. I think Jesus was trying to bring some attention to this woman because he was trying to bring attention to a mindset and a mentality that churches often suffer from is that we do not value all people equally when we should because all people were created by God and everyone's divine purpose is just as important as the other. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 18 says, Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that make it any less part of the body? And if the ear says, well, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear if your whole body were an ear? How would you smell anything? I think Paul's having some play on words there with humor when he talks about feet, but that's just my own reading into the text. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. See, if you're making a decision about whether or not to call a church your home, you should be asking the question, do I feel valued there? No matter what I look like, no, no, no matter what giftedness it, it seems that I'm bringing to the table, do I feel celebrated? And do I feel inspired to give of myself to the work that is there? going to read it again. All of us who have read or heard these verses before understand Jesus was bringing correction to the wealthy, but he was also speaking to the widow. Jesus here is trying to break something that I'm calling the widow mindset. For some of you, you have a church that you call home. Maybe it's this church and you kind of sit back and watch and it's not because you're lazy. It's not because you're a taker. It's not because you have a character problem. It's because you have a widow's mindset. It's because you look at what's happening and, and you've bought into the line belief that you've got nothing to contribute and God wants to break that widow's mindset. He created you with a purpose. He created you with a kingdom purpose. And there are giftings and abilities that he wants to awaken in you, even if you don't know what they are. And sometimes you don't see them come alive until you start trying to build his kingdom with the people that are sitting next to you. If you're going to find a church and you're going to call it home, does it inspire you to value yourself? That you are God-ordained. To be a part of building his kingdom. Another question you should ask yourself, going back to the top, April, is what is the leadership culture of that church? You can't read these texts and not see that Jesus is trying to bring some correction to the leadership culture of his day. Listen to this verse in verse 46 and 20. It says, beware of these teachers of religious law. 
For they like to parade around in flowing robes and love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at the banquets. Mark 10, 42 to 45. So Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Come on. What is the leadership culture like in the church that you're thinking about joining? I'm going to give you three things that you should be looking for in a healthy leadership culture. There's probably 30 things, but this will give you a good start. Are there elders who are unpaid, who have a real voice in the church when it comes to finances, vision, beliefs, and promoting other leaders? They, they don't have to call them elders. You don't, they don't necessarily have to use biblical titles. Sometimes modern churches move away from, from, from churchy kind of language. That's okay. What, what I'm saying is in function are they there? Sometimes churches have things that are called uh, boards or we, we call it our elder team here. So, some people call it a council of advisors. Don't be drawn in by what it's named. You want to ask questions about how they function. Do they have a real voice when it comes to finances, vision, beliefs, and promoting other leaders. Meaning that are they, when they sit at the table with the lead pastor or lead pastors, when they sit at the table with senior staff, do they feel like they have an equal voice or are they expected to just echo the one voice that's given to them by the person in charge? Here's another one. Is the lead pastor in a permission-giving relationship with the elders or that team and accountable to a fellowship or denomination. Meaning that regardless of what the leadership style is of the lead person, you can have people that, that have an intense command and control, leadership personality, there's nothing wrong with that. You can have somebody who has an intense team building, consensus kind of approach to leadership, there's nothing wrong with that. There's all kinds of leadership personalities out there that God made them, That's that God made people with the leadership personalities they have to be able to accomplish the things they're supposed to do. But even if you are carved out of the granite of command and control, you should have a group of people, I believe, in the context of church, I'm not saying about this for all of life and business, but in church, I believe the biblical model is that person should have a permission-giving relationship with a room of people. Meaning that there should be people that have the right to say to that person, no. If the team doesn't have the freedom to say no to that person, then it's not a permission-giving relationship. Are there elders? Are there permission-giving relationships? These are all things that we have here. What is the reputation, this is the third one, of the senior leaders? Are they respected and esteemed? These notes are always online. You can get it on our sermons page or podcast page through our website i have here in a parenthetical clause just for you if you want to do some further reading titus 1 5 through 9 and first timothy 3 1 through 7 gives us some lists of things that should characterize people who are going to be senior leaders in churches 
What is the reputation of the senior leaders? Are they respected and esteemed? When you're visiting a church, you should pay attention. You might have to visit a few times to figure out who the leaders are, but if I were you, I would pay attention. What's the body language between them and their spouse? Where are their kids? Are they engaged in the service? Do people that are taking instructions as volunteers from people that are in charge because they're telling them what to do, what's the countenance on their face? Is it resentment? Or is there a sense that we're all in this thing together for Jesus? And our leaders love us because they demonstrate it by the way that they serve us day in and day out. Because that has a certain look on a person's face. And when that's not there, there's another look that you see on people's faces. And hopefully not the look that you'll ever see here. It's one of the reasons why we say you can't make a decision about a church on just one day. Sometimes we have bad days. Sometimes the countenance on my face and Vanessa's face on a Saturday might not be what you think it is because we're people too. We had a conversation earlier that day. <laughs> and I haven't figured out that I'm wrong yet. But I get there. I get there. I get there. We're not saying that people have to be perfect. What we're saying is what characterizes you. You with me? What characterizes you? So I like to, what's the culture of the leadership there? Everybody has bad days. Everybody has tense moments. But what is it most of the time? I love this verse in Proverbs 15, 22. Plans go wrong for a lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. Many advisors bring success. Doctrines and beliefs. Let's talk about that one. Luke 21, 5 through 6. This is part of what I think Jesus was trying to get at when he was venting with the disciples a little bit while they were having an HGTV moment here with the temple. It says, the time is coming where all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of one another. Right? The disciples are like, whoa, hello. I think he got their attention. Temple worship was no small thing in Jesus' day. And rightly so, because you cannot read the Old Testament. You cannot get through the books of, of of, of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you can't get through these books and not see that the reason why they were so enthralled by temple worship is because God told them to do it with extravagance. When you read and hear that it's extravagant. They weren't doing it because they were poorly motivated. Now, they might have been doing it with the wrong desire for their own fame, but their methods, their practices were sacred and were scriptural. I love that Jesus points to those things to say that they will fall away because I think what he was trying to say to you and to me that in this life there will be things that are sacred to us. Doctrines and beliefs and practices that he wants us to have, that he wants us to operate in. They flow from Scripture, but at the same time, I think what he's saying is just remember, keep it in perspective, because a lot of those things won't matter once you get to heaven. So stop fighting over it. Stop being divided by them. Make room for one another. 
You have this incredible conversation in John 4 where where he was with the Samaritan woman and and she asked Jesus this question. Should should the real temple and real place of worship be here at Mount Gerizim where the Samaritans worship or should it be in Jerusalem? And, And she says, and rightly so, because our ancestors, they didn't worship in Jerusalem, they worship on Mount Gerizim. So we we, we really have the, the rightful claim to the true place of worship. And that's where Jesus says, hey, you've you got to understand, lady, that there's going to come a point in time where none of that matters to God anymore. See, they matter today, but they're not going to matter then. So let them matter to you to the point that they should because they're sacred to you, because they inspire you to feel close with God, but stop using them to try to make other people feel wrong. Denominations. I know I might be in the minority here, but I think they were God's plan all from the beginning. He knows that people are flawed. Can you imagine if we all believe the same thing, how quickly all of Christianity could just go right over the cliff? I think this idea of denominations was God's plan from the beginning. This idea of healthy tensions, it, it keeps us sharp, gives us clarity. Think about all the theological streams. Calvinism, Arminianism, Pentecostalism, all the ists that are out there. Amillennialists, traditionalists, dispensationalists, all the isms and the ists, we've got lots of them. And all of them have strong biblical foundations. But when we get to heaven, there's not going to be any isms and ists there. There's just going to be a king, and his name is Jesus Arguments that we have about women as leaders, I get it. We, we believe that women should be leaders. We have women elders. We have women pastors. My good friend Jeff Mingi, who uh, the, the Saturday, uh, Sunday morning church at Catalyst Church, I love that church. I recommend that church to people. They, they believe very differently. They, they don't believe that women should be elders or don't believe that, that, that women should be pastors, not, not because they're misogynistic and not because they're chauvinistic. It's just they have a different point of view on some of these texts. They divide us today by what we believe, but we should not be divided in relationship because of them. Spiritual language, come on, we believe in spiritual language here. I preach on it at least once a year. We talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not everybody believes it's for today. That's okay. We do. Others don't. If you hear somebody worshiping next to you and you can't figure out the language that they're speaking, it might be because it's heavenly. That's okay. We believe in that here. But it's not going to matter in heaven. Tithing, giving, stewardship, it's important here. It matters here. It's not going to matter there. It's not going to matter in heaven. Listen to this blog post I wrote recently about what's going on in our, in our, in our government. It's entitled Homogeneity and Impeachment. I've got two parts out. I think there's a couple more parts that are coming, but this is an excerpt from it. The link is in the notes on the website. We have been convinced that unless everyone agrees with everything we believe, those in disagreement are wrong. We have lost sight of Paul's expectation in Colossians 3.14, where he says that we should clothe ourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. The New American Standard uses instead the phrase perfect harmony. Love that. The perfect bond of unity is what it literally means in the Greek. This word for perfect is the same word found in Hebrews 6.1 that translates to maturity. And the word for the bond of unity is the same that Paul uses in Ephesians 4 to speak of a bond of peace. In every instance, 
Sameness is never implied or stated. On the contrary, the context for biblical instruction regarding unity always necessitates differences. There can't be true harmony unless we disagree. That is why the New Living Translation employs the word harmony. Find a church whose doctrines and beliefs resonate with you but are not so arrogant about their positions that they need others to be wrong so they can feel right. Let me say it again. Find a church whose doctrines and beliefs resonate with you but are not so arrogant, talking about the church, about their positions that they need others to be wrong so they can feel right. Where am I? Oh, come on. We're going to keep going. Community impact. Community impact. Luke 20, 47. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be severely punished. Hmm. See, this is a question that a church should always be willing to ask itself. Who would feel our absence? Who would feel our absence? Because the answer, if the answer is, few or no one, then you're not having the kind of impact that you should. A church should be having the kind of impact so that if it were no longer there, the city would feel its absence. Teenagers, just imagine tomorrow if your mom wasn't home. There would be no food to eat and none of your clothes would be clean. Who would feel your absence? Every church should have a list of how they're impacting the city that they're in. I'm not saying that every church should have this list. I'm saying every church should have a list. One for us is that we're involved with So All May Eat, feeding program in downtown Newport News. We're active in outreaches in South Morrison, We've been a longtime participant in Port, which is the ministry that houses the homeless during the winter months. We support Catalyst Effect. Come on. Right there. How about InterVarsity and Crew at New Christopher Newport University? Come on, got a few students here back from break. It's good to have you. We're glad that you get away, but we miss you when you're gone. Establish footsteps. Come on here in Newport News and Ministry. Come on. These, a lot of these are city life people. That's why we're, we're excited. Virginia Beach Justice Initiative. We regularly participate in city council prayers, our pastoral team. We're part of the Virginia Unity Project here. Churches coming together to try to bring some unity and diversity amongst the church at large. Vanessa's got a meeting coming up with the principal at Riverside Elementary. They reached out to us and said, let's talk about how we can work together. Come on. 
We're members of the Neighborhood Association. You're not supposed to be able to be a part as an organization, but because we are an organization that's in the community, they made an exception for us. And we joined a few years ago. They used the building for their meetings. We try to get involved with some cleanups here in the community. We support other area churches. How, how great is it that there are four of us as churches of different denominations, different theological streams, all sharing this building together? There's an impact here that City Life is having. Are there other churches that are having bigger impacts? Yes, they are. But we're not in competition with those churches. We're in competition with God's dream for us. We're not in competition with the body of Christ. We're in competition for the dream that God has for the City Life Church. And his dream for every church is such that if you were to give up on it, the city would suffer. Romans 10. 14 to 15, but how can they call on him, Jesus, to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. We want the City Life Church to be a source of good news in our city. Come on, we're going to make it. Miracles never cease. Let me talk about this for impact. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. Then I'm going to give you the fifth and final question you should be asking. As you came in, hopefully you were given this card for missions giving and this pamphlet that highlights a lot of these groups that I read and then some I didn't. I was just reading the ones that are locally, but then we're active also overseas. This time of year marks for us where we begin talking for you about our, our, our budget for the coming year. We have an open books here policy. We do a, a huge uh, business meeting at the end of February where we do a massive in-depth uh, presentation about all the money that came in, all the money that went out, where it went, how it got there, who were the deciders. It's all important to us, transparency here. But part of that is missions giving. All of the money that comes in through missions giving, 100% of it goes right back out. We don't keep it here. In 20, I haven't done the numbers for 2018, so I can't give you the number yet because we're working on those reports now. But in, in 2017, we gave between forty-five dollars and $50,000 to missions that came from, your, from you. You tracking with me? It's, it's giving from you to things, to initiatives like this. All of that money goes right back out, supporting missionaries, funding trips. None of it stays here. None of it. And that's not going to change now that we have a building, just so you know, in case you were wondering. It's not going to change. So you get this pamphlet and you get this card, and in February, we're going we're gonna to collect these cards. I think it's the first Saturday of February during, during communion. We'll have baskets, and in, in, in you, in you bring your card. We, we ask that you do two things. One, we ask that you make a monthly commitment because that gives us our budget to support missionaries. So we were able to, listen, last year, so many people participated in a monthly gift for the first time. We wiped out our entire waiting list for people that we're waiting on our waiting list to be supported. Come on, how great is that? So make a monthly commitment. If you made a monthly commitment last year, you need to remake it this year. You track it with me? You gotta fill one of these out every year. And then we ask you to make an annual faith promise. I love this about our church. We've been doing it since the very first year that we came. We challenged the church in it. So much money comes in the church through this. This is you praying, asking God to give you a number. You ask God to give you a number 
That's, that's the faith part that he's going to provide it. And then you make a promise that when he does, that you give it to missions. It's a faith promise. It's above and beyond your monthly commitment. If you get to the end of the year and that doesn't come in, that's okay. That's why you, there's no place here for a name. This isn't a pledge. Nobody's try, that's just between you and God. But can I just tell you the stories that come into this church every year of how people get checks in the mail, people calling him up that owed them money, people getting raises and bonuses that they didn't think they were going to get. You know why? Because they made a faith promise. And that money comes to you, and it goes right to missions, and it comes to us, and it goes right back out the door. Come on, let's make February the biggest faith promise we've ever had. So let me give you this last one, and then we're going to sing this final song together. It's the last one because it's really the first one. Luke 21, the first part of verse 1. While Jesus was at the temple. While Jesus was in the temple. While Jesus was around the temple. While Jesus was all throughout the temple. You see, the most important question you can ask when you're trying to figure out whether or not you're going to call the church home is, do you feel the presence of Jesus while you're there? Does it feel more like they're waiting for him to rise from the dead because they're not sure he's awake yet? Or is it a church that's living and walking and ministering and loving one another in the power of the resurrection of Christ? When, when you're there, do you feel Jesus? Now, if you don't, listen to me, don't judge. Because it might be that he's more alive there for some people than they've ever felt before. Just because you don't feel his presence there doesn't mean that he's absent. It could, but it might not. Because sometimes that's just how God lets you know that that's not where you're supposed to settle. You tracking with me? So you got to be careful. But you should feel in there. If no one feels in there, then that's, tr that's a problem. But just because you don't doesn't mean that others don't either. But you got to find the place that when you walk in the door, when you're there, during the message and the times of prayer and the worship, it doesn't have to be stylistically like ours. It could be a church that's more traditional. It could be a church that's much more quiet. It could be a church that's, that, that, that's much more reflective and liturgical. All, there's all different kinds of styles. The, the question is, do you feel in your heart that you are in the presence of the risen Savior when you're in that place? Stand with me. Father, I pray for every person that's here who's looking for a church to call home. For every person that's going to be listening to this podcast. For every person that's going to be downloading these notes for a friend who's in a church search, maybe in another state, maybe in another place. Father, we pray that for every person that's on that search, for every person that's made that a resolution and a goal for 2020, I pray God that this year they're going to find their home, that this year they're going to find their community, that this year they're going to find their family, and they're going to be all in. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.